This podcast is brought to you by the Common Mission Project. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Rico. I'm super happy to be here today. It's amazing, Kim, to have you here. It couldn't be more 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 timely and and interesting. So thank you for 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 being with us. Yeah, sincerely appreciate it. So um, this the board of advisors series that we're that we're doing with Common Mission Project is really exciting, and I think one thing that. I didn't appreciate before joining the organization is what an incredible group of board of advisors we have at Common Mission Project. And uh, as we were preparing for these episodes and, you know, doing our people research uh, with these, uh, looking at Kim's bio was, well, I mean, there's so much we can talk about and seeing what we can compress into a 40 minute or so episode here. But um, Kim, thank you so much for, for a being part of the common mission project board of advisors uh, and the, and the expertise that you're willing to bring to the organization. It's, it's sincerely appreciated. It's, it's people like Kim who helped this organization run. And I, I can't um, underscore that fact enough. So again, thank you so much for being here with us. Jim, it's a pleasure to be here. And um, I am so supportive of the common mission project because of what it entails to do and how it is seeking to empower young leaders today to take on public service and to really um, connect intention with action and align people with mission. So thanks again for having me here. No, absolutely. It's our pleasure. So just, you know, we, we know that sometimes going through like, what's my background since the day I was born, everything else can get a little bit tiring. But what I want to do is kind of link your background together with some of the things that how it's helped you influence your decision to be on the board of advisor and the, and the things that it's helping you, what you're moving forward with, and with your career. So, you know, kind of want to get an idea of, you know, who is Kim? What are you, what are you doing and, and, and kind of who you are from, you know, professional background and, and what brought you toward this mission driven innovation and entrepreneurship that we have at Common Mission Project? Thanks, Jim. Yeah. So, you know, I spent most of my career in government, uh, always had an interest in public service and, being part of a mission larger than me and um, trying to figure out ways to contribute to our national security. Uh, what brought me into government actually was when I was a student, both in undergrad and in my graduate years, um, I, I was on a, on a fellowship. Uh, I don't know if you'd heard, but the David L. Bourne Scholarship and Fellowship and then also the Fulbright Scholarship. And it took me to South Korea to spend some time there to learn the language, um, understand the culture, and better understand um, U.S. policy towards uh, the Koreas. And that really propelled my interest in uh, going into foreign policy and national Mm -hmm. security. Mm -hmm. Uh, With those fellowships in particular, it had also a, a public service commitment as well. Um, And so I found myself right after graduating um, from my graduate degree, going to the intelligence community, and I I started at uh, the Central Intelligence Agency as an analyst, and had been there for most of my career, um, working on East Asian issues, um, with some stints here and there um, on rotations to um, different policy roles, and then ultimately went to the U.S. House Armed Services Committee um, as a professional staff member mm-hmm. working on Indo-Pacific. But it was really the, the, the combination of all of those experiences um, that uh, continued my interest in, in East Asia, continued my interest on this, this strategic challenge that we're facing right now as a country um, being, you know, China. And um, really trying to find different ways to um, contribute uh, to the national security 
uh, lens. Um, and, you know, I think with the Common Mission Project, it's, to me, it's kind of a, a similar um, parallel where you have students that are in school and they're focusing on a problem set and really trying to figure out avenues to make them actionable and, and putting them into, into solutions for government, for the private sector to, to understand and navigate. And so what, what really kind of um, interests me in Common Mission Project is being able to help advise and um, kind of serve in this role again, um, helping students and getting them excited about what's, what's in store for them in their careers and how they can really help um, the national security space, which is really, really important today. Hey Kim, thank you so much. And I mean, the, your 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 conversation and the framing that you just put together couldn't be more more timely. As we speak, who knows when this will air? But as we speak, uh, Secretary Blinken just had a a meeting with Xi, and and we're trying to uh, fi figure out from from a diplomacy perspective what are the next steps for this complex dance between the United States and China. So, given mm -hmm. given your background and your interest with, with with CMP, what would you say are some of the things that our listeners might want to hear about regarding this? innovation space and our, related, our complicated relation with China. What are the things that, in your point of view, every entrepreneur should consider as we, as we think about the geostrategic implications of our relationship and then, and then our, our interest in the development of the innovation space here in the United States? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And, you know, right now we really are in um, tremendous competition with with China on a range of issues. And you just mentioned innovation, and that's certainly a key one with all of the emerging technologies that are out there in AI, quantum computing, um, semiconductors, bio, um, it, the really the, you know, on the defense side, uh, medical side um, and elsewhere, it's, it's really quite expansive. And you know, I think today, as we think about um, competition with China, China really is striving to be the, the global leader in all of these areas. Mm -hmm. And these are sectors that the United States has, um, for a long time, um, have, have led. Um, and, you know, we've, we have um, certainly benefited from, from our leadership in, in these areas. And uh, it's sure. one area that the administration and um, you know Congress is really focused on in terms of trying to figure out how um, we can continue in, to lead in, in these areas. And with the secretary's trip just recently, um, he this is his first trip as Secretary of State uh, to China, and you know there has been quite a bit of turbulence in the relationship, particularly over mm -hmm. the last six months. Mm -hmm. And really, I think what the administration was trying to do is, is set, set the floor for, for communication and dialogue, even though that we're competing against China right now on a range of issues. Sure. Um, there's certainly benefits to still being and still communicating with them uh, and trying to find solutions to certain problems. Now, I'm not super optimistic about um, a change in um, relations uh, necessarily. I do think communication is important, uh, but I think that we also have to understand the reality of the situation as when we have a, a competitor or, or some would say adversary who mm -hmm. um, is willing to take a lot of steps. I think we have a, we have a competitor and an adversary of China 
that is um, trying to take the world in a very different direction than our own. And we all need to be very wide-eyed about um, the threat that that could pose to us. No, it's, it's a very interesting way that you framed it. It's almost, uh, you know, like maybe... Yeah, it's a, that's a great question. And there's lots of opportunities out there with the race for all these technologies when it comes to artificial intelligence and quantum computing, um, you know, across the different defense and tech sectors. And really that means that, you know, a lot of these innovations start up at the startup side, uh, venture capitalism, startups, um, small companies, large companies. There's the, the pie is so large that um, the ability for, um, you know, anyone really to, to have a chunk of that um, is really um, out there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think that for people to, um, it's, it's, there's really a lot of opportunity for people to, to innovate and to, um, you know, start um, their own companies. Uh, and, and I, I think that there's a lot, there's a lot of, there's a tremendous amount of opportunity for, for startups and for students coming out of universities to go into engineering, to go into computer science um, and into these fields. The greatest strength that I think America has is our people and talent. And we need uh, people to, to work on these issues and really um, be forced multipliers for both, not just the private sector, but really for the public sector and for government. Mm-hmm. Um, as what we've seen, what China does in their society is they have military civil fusion, whereby mm-hmm. you know, the state and um, their commercial sector really is um, one of its own. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that we should necessarily replicate that same model here in the United States, but I do think that there's a lot more that we could be doing in terms of bridging the private sector with the public sector to try to find solutions to um, a lot of the technology problems that we have. Um, and also, there's tons of opportunity for um, our businesses and for our government to work hand to hand to really accelerate our advantage in this space. Because if we I- don't, then China certainly will try to. Absolutely. I think that what you're saying is such an important part, Ken. And, and there are a few things. There are so many uh, uh, layers of the onion that we could peel out of it. But uh, there are two that I'm very interested in. One would be uh, what you just mentioned, that uh, there's clearly a realization in the United States. And we've, we heard both Steve Blank and the Secretary of Defense talk about this, of the importance of creating some kind of new doctrine of innovation, of, of, of way of thinking. And we've been creating institutions, I mean, of which the Hacking for Defense movement is one of the components mm-hmm. of this idea of creating a new structure. So in a, in a, with the American flavor, uh, create some kind of capability that bridges the, the, the entrepreneurial uh, 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 cadre of the country with the national security needs, right? So that's that's one aspect that I would love to uh, ask uh, in the in the next few years and with what you know about what the the, the, the Chinese uh, ecosystem looks like, but also what, what ours looks like because you have a, a tremendous mm-hmm. insight of how Amer- things look also in America. What are the things that we're doing right and what we should be doing more of that it's part of the flavor of how America should respond with our values and our respect for the kind of institutions that we have this side of 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 the hemisphere uh, uh, that 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 are working well and could work even better. Okay. Yeah. Well, I think one of the things that we are doing right is what the Common Mission Project is doing right now, 
And that's really linking students, young people with, um, with mission critical problems and trying to figure out new innovative and entrepreneurial solutions to um, solve those problems. So I think that the more that we can get the younger generation involved, the more that we can get uh, money, funding, people in STEM programs and and having them um, contribute to public service really is going to make the United States stand out um, for years to come. So, you know, I think we're doing, um, I think the Common Mission Project in itself is doing um, a great deal in this area. And I'd love to see that, um, love to see this even multiply even further, having a call uh, more broadly to national security and focus in these areas. No, that's interesting. I, you know, my experience in the classroom and Rodrigo, I know you work with a lot of folks who are in uniform, but one of the yep. things that's been interesting to me is, that, is you're right, is that is the interaction within the the government, the, the, the public sector, where students are actually able to see, oh, there's actually a lot of innovative things that are happening in the federal government. My favorite example is a recent one, and Kim, I, I always I laugh about this one, but it's I had a student after working with TSA tell me this is my dream job is to go work with the TSA when I graduate. I would challenge anybody who's listening to this <laughs> to say that they've ever heard anybody say that. <laughs> um, but this was sincere because of like the level of innovation. This had to do with accessibility from a language perspective. But when when students, when young people are able to see that I can go make a difference in the world. And I can do something really interesting and have broad impact. And that's, I agree with you, is that kind of power is beyond just the Lean Launchpad framework or a lot of these things is the fact that they are getting immersed with these agencies or these individuals that have this lifelong impact on these students and the trajectory in which they're going to go. And that's such a gratifying thing for me as a, you know, as a educator is being able to see like, oh, they found their path because of this program. And that's, I mean, I guess what else are you looking for as a, as a, you know, faculty member uh, is being able to say, I played a little role in that. So I totally agree with that. And is, I think in the power of hacking for is, is having some of those interactions, but I want to kind of go back a little bit with Rodrigo's questions in terms of the things that we're doing right to do the inverse of that. So we talked, you talked a little bit about the things that we think that we're doing well, but what are the things that you'd say, like, if I could wave my magic wand and say in five years that these are the changes that would take place to help facilitate our national security innovation, perhaps? Well, I think it's a combination of factors. I think, two, what we need to do is prevent, uh, you know, U.S. technology, know-how, talent from going outside of the United States. Mm -hmm. So currently, there's uh, China takes advantage of um, trying to get U.S. talent, uh, other foreign talent, as well as uh, stealing uh, intellectual property information. Uh, and um, in the joint ventures between U.S. companies and also um, Chinese companies um, have given China a clear advantage in certain technology sectors. Mm -hmm. Because it's reaping the benefit of uh, having the funding and the know-how um, to you know to create their own uh, businesses in these areas. So I think some of it has to be you know preventative or you know, more um, deterrence related, uh, mm -hmm. not deterrence related, but more preventative. Mm -hmm. I think the other side, though, uh, we have to come up with proactive strategies to incentivize American businesses. Uh, U.S. students, young people, old people, to really rally behind U.S. innovation and technology 
um, get involved, start their own businesses, uh, find ways to um, come up with solutions uh, working with government. And uh, the government should, should I think, incentivize uh, U.S. companies to do more. And that could be tax incentives or other types of incentives to, to have more of that partnership. And so I think it's kind of a balance between, uh, you know, a, a, some proactive initiatives, but then also we also have to be careful in not allowing uh, U.S. information uh, being sent to our greatest competitor. So it's, it's a balance of those two things. So I think we haven't asked you yet, and it's maybe interesting for our listeners. Is within within the product space that you that you work, your own your own your own area of expertise and the kind of job that you do. So you, you want to explain a little bit to our listeners what what that is. What are you you would say some of the hurdles that you identify that would be important for for the government to actually uh, uh, deal with and, and and fix? Right. What are the core problems that you that you see in your own day to day contribution to the to the innovation ecosystem of the United States? I think we need to be uh, a little bit more tolerant of risk. Uh, and I say that in the sense of, I think we should be taking more risks. Um, we should be accepting the possibility that even if we fail, at least we'll have tried. Mm. And, uh, and I also think that some of this comes to understanding that we may have to kind of endure or, or um, um, ready ourselves to endure um, some challenging times in terms of China tries to take take away business or, or mm -hmm. um, commercial trade um, with the United States. Uh, we have to you know, we have to be more comfortable with risk and and tension. Um, and part of that being more comfortable with risk is you know being okay with taking a risk and failing, knowing that we're trying to push. Um, innovation and 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 lead. On the other hand, though, um, we also need to understand that by some of our policies, even if we're restricting investment into into China uh, or making it more difficult to do business with China, um, that in the end of the day is to serve U.S. interests and in, in U.S. companies and um, U.S. national security. And so even if it might be difficult in the near term, in the longer term, really, um, that that's kind of what needs to, to happen for us to succeed. No, I, I think this is fascinating. And, and we've been discussing a lot of the so-called decoupling and the costs of taking some parts of our uh, uh, supply chains and, and production capabilities away from this this uh, intermingling that had happened between the United States and well the West in general and 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 yeah. China and uh, again framing you're framing it as a, as an innovation challenge right it's not only about the great power competition element is that ultimately this has becomes part of a a new uh, innovation policy of the United States when you want to ask what are the core the core activities and this is something that we often ask uh, for those that we teach in the hacking for defense programs what do you want to what do you want it to be a core activity right versus what is a key partner that you want to look for outside of your organization right and mm -hmm. as a nation we probably what you're you, what you're describing here Kim, I, I think that it's that 
we should be very reflective about what are the things that we don't want to be outsourcing to different uh, to different regions of the planet and we want to keep as core uh, uh, core activities key activities uh, of the United States enterprise in itself right so I, I think it's fascinating that you're framing it uh, from 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 that less than that point of view so. Yeah, and if I and it's it was interesting, Rodrigo. You you led me to this next question, and and Kim, listening to you, is this idea of policy innovation. So you you've been talking about this idea of you know getting more students in the STEM, and I, nothing I can argue with. I totally agree, and I think it's this other part of it too. Is that do you see that is there this policy barrier that sometimes is prohibitive to the type of technical innovation that we need, and there's an opportunity for a um, lack of better terminology, like a renaissance of policy innovation to make it, whether it's easier or conducive to these smaller innovative firms or individuals that come in and be able to help, uh, to be able to push the national security agenda of the United States and allied uh, nations. But that's something that I've seen a lot in the classroom is how frequently technology problems become policy and adoption problems uh, that has to be kind of highlighted first before they can implement whatever type of technical solution. Do you see there being this on the on the horizon, this tech um, policy innovation that's going to facilitate the next generation of technology innovation. Yeah, I think we certainly need to do more on the on the policy side and move quicker. And as I said, you know, be willing to take risks in these areas and push the envelope. I think outside of policy, though, um, you know, really, I think, you know, at a level here in Washington D.C., we're all talking about policy and legislation and we're hearing from experts you know at think tanks about um, a range of, of issues um, being China or, or elsewhere for the for the American though that's living in you know North Dakota or Washington State or California or New York or New Mexico or wherever that might be I really do think it's um, it's bringing these policy issues um, this tech and innovation, um, these tech and innovation ideas that you're just speaking to, uh, we need to bring it home to the local level. Mm. Um, I think it's the combination of, you know, the the policy uh, thinking here in Washington, but then actually being able to operationalize it at the local level, um, wherever you are. And part of that is what we just talked about in terms of, you know, universities and education. The other part of that is business and public service at the mm -hmm. local level too. And so I think, you know, one thing that I'm working on um, right now is, is a series on why America should care about mm. these issues. Okay. And it's a, it's a series um, of, well, what I'd like it to be eventually is a series of two minute short videos, just oh, as okay. videos of understanding kind of like what's at stake? Um, why why do these problems matter to, to the person in whichever state that they're living in? And really kind of talking about how, you know, for years, America's strength has been an innovation in manufacturing. However, for the last few decades, America has outsourced a lot of its manufacturing of both simple and complex supplies to China. Mm -hmm. And I think that the pandemic really showed how dependent we are on Chinese manufacturing yep. for items. And we saw this right. through the face masks and Clorox and plastics and even, you know, just even baby formula. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, there's a 
there's a need to essentially bring this type of these types of business, businesses back um, here to the United States um, for our own supply chain. And, uh, you know, and I think that explaining um, some of these these problem sets across a range of issues to, to medical supplies, to, you know, biotech, which I think is super important mm-hmm. um, and, well, you know, to other other areas of farming, et cetera, um, will really be useful to get more Americans um, kind of energized and um, thinking about how they themselves can be part of the solutions. There is a cadre of, of thinkers, right, that would completely agree with you, Kim, in, in that we had a, a bigger problem. I mean, I mean a, a, a problem that is as big as the one you're describing, which is that in many ways, a lot of American entrepreneurship was, was axed or oriented towards building new software that later on would be bought by one of the big uh, tech companies, right? Everybody, nobody was dreaming right. anymore about becoming the next Apple or the next uh, uh, Amazon. They wanted to be bought by Amazon or Apple. And uh, <laughs> one of the things that you started to see is that a lot of the brightest minds on the planet uh, here in America we're trying to solve what I, I would call it, I don't want to say trivial problems, but if, if, you're, if your next calendar app is a little better, uh, incrementally better than the previous one, it's not going to change the world, right? And one of the things that I'm very optimistic about this, this burst of the bubble in Silicon Valley that we've seen recently is that it's forcing people to, again, think what matters and what's mm-hmm. important, what, what kind of innovation we should be bringing back. And part of what you're saying is who wants to feel, who feels comfortable tackling the hard stuff, right? The difficult, the, the the supply chain management issue, the hardware stuff that it's not like coding software that you can do it with. So uh, do you see some of that being part of the effort that hacking for organizations or teams could be tackling given the the short amount of time that normally we have in a hacking for program? Uh, how could we square the, the, the circle of what you just described with the importance of doing difficult stuff with the with the velocity, right, of the hacking for defense world. Yeah, absolutely. So I think you hit on a really critical node um, is that we all want to solve these sexy, you know, problems or come up with a new, yep. you know, flashy um, technology or app uh, that everybody wants to get on or use. But, you know, in reality, though, like there's really a, a long list of, supplies um, or elements, core elements, to getting anything out the door. And as you mentioned, you know, we have relied on the supply chain offshore, uh, mainly in China. And I think if this is, a, this is actually a really fascinating topic um, for a hacking for defense um, group to do, is to, is to really kind of investigate, you know, where are those critical nodes in the supply chain? And how can U.S. companies, businesses, maybe it's even mm-hmm. more local, um, you know, local small businesses on board to create more manufacturing for for elements of the U.S. supply chain? Um, right. And yeah. you know, and some of this is oh, just like it could, you know, very small parts. But if you don't have that part, then the bigger um, product that you're relying on. Yep. Um, whether it's, you know, for your daily life or for national security, that's going to be a problem. You're not going to be able to do it unless you have these other components. 
So I think that would be a really fascinating topic for hacking for defense or a hacking for to really kind of investigate and drill down on and figure out what are the ways that, you know, we can um, think about uh, manufacturing here in the United States for those. I, I love that one. I'm going to throw that one to you, Jim, because for our listeners, Jim is one of the few faculty members that we have that has, has taught every flavor of hacking for, right? So, <laughs> uh, and that, so, so, so it, it's fascinating because this is at the same time a hacking for defense issue, of course, but it's also yeah. hacking for homeland security because it has to do with our domestic capacity to build resiliency in critical infrastructure. But it's also mm-hmm. hacking for diplomacy because it clearly yeah. would have uh, geostrategic elements uh, in in a relationship with the rest of the of, of the planet. And certainly it's a hacking for impact issue because we could be building a lot of transformational industries right here. So it's it's I, I love what you're saying, Kim, because it just it just created a a a, a target rich uh, uh, environment for uh, transformational programs that actually could cross across the multiple hacking for methodologies. Yeah, and Rodrigo, you hit on a really important point too when you talked about hacking for diplomacy, because there are a lot of countries out there, um, you know, our allies and our partners that we should be working together on these issues mm-hmm. and yep. maybe well, sure. it doesn't have maybe it doesn't have to be manufactured here in the united states but um but having it manufactured in another country that is friendly to the united states that also yep. has the same values and principles you know and and wants to have freedom as well you know like and and, and it's not um you know going to be a threat to the united states like those are the those are the types of things that we should be trying to expand our diplomatic initiatives um, on as well, and you'd mentioned hacking for um, hacking for homeland security, absolutely critical for mm-hmm. the United States and and all of our infrastructure, uh, where we really need to focus on um, and ensure that um, sure. all core elements in our infrastructure, um, you know, are are either U.S. components or um, components from friendly countries, um, whereby you know we we won't be vulnerable to. So I think, you know, um, an initiative that looks at supply chain issues, again, it's not it's yep. not a sexy topic, but it's such an important one for us. I couldn't agree more. I think one of the things that springs to mind, you mentioned, like we saw like these critical uh, junction points during the pandemic was uh, you were, you know, cleaning products. But the one that really came to mind is seeing how many distillers started making hand sanitizer. And they were able to pivot what they were doing in the business model to use materials they had to respond to, you know, national security crisis and health crisis that we saw. And um, I I think that was really neat to see. But, you know, Kim, one of the things I want to kind of get back to, and this is something I've seen in my experience, too, is talking about seeing that everybody individually matters and you can bring it down to that very micro local level. And I've seen that in in a lot of the programs I've taught, but in Hacking for Impact in particular, where they were um, talking about transportation and we got into uh, transportation for individuals with disabilities. And I, I sent the sent the students, almost said kids, they're not kids, <laughs> sent the students uh, to a local uh, primary school that for students with disabilities and, and, and physical disabilities and said, why don't you go watch them get off the bus and see what that looks like and where is their opportunity? And, and I think that's one of the things where everybody can make an impact. You might not change the world, but you can change your community. And I, I would love to talk, like, get a little bit more on your thoughts there about this idea that 
yeah, maybe it's not the sexiest topic and you might not be the next Bill Gates, but you can be a critical point in solving an issue that's going to change lives. Is that something that we would that you'd like to see happening more where the federal government is encouraging or helping facilitate? You mentioned either through that tax benefits or different things, having that microcosm of this matters locally, it can be scaled nationally and then ultimately globally. Yeah, I think, you know, people people want to do something that's that they feel is greater than themselves, right? And contributing to society and being part of their community. And so ways that these types of programs can energize and motivate um, people to to help their communities, I'm I'm all for. Uh, whether or not it's, you know, where the funding comes in, whether it's federal, it could be state, you know, mm-hmm. it could be local. Um, those are all, I think, things that can get worked out down the road. But programs like CMP, um, you know, essentially leading um, leading this effort, I think, you know, we'll, we'll get it started. And I think that that's the direction that we need to go to go down. Yeah, because we do have that ability to kind of look we're in the universities and different things. I think it's a really good point is that you're building this model that you're able to that we are replicating all over the world. And you mentioned, you know, the friendly nations and things like that. I mean, uh, living in Rochester, New York, one of the things and being a dual U.S. Canadian is seeing the battery development and the plants that they're building in Canada to help with the nations in, in Europe and the U.S. and and our Five Eyes nations. It's really interesting to see where. We're starting to see manufacturing for something that was traditionally outsourced to, to China uh, happening here with friendly nations. It's really interesting to see. And I I do think we're going to see more and more of that. Rodrigo, you, we've talked a lot about the CHIPS Act. And I think that's one of those pieces of key legislation that may be the pendulum shifting to facilitate some of this really necessary manufacturing back in, back in the U.S. or into to friendly nations. Yeah, and following up on that one, Kim, and I would love, would love to get your idea, uh, your, your 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 impressions on this is that there was a geopolitical theory, theory of the case regarding the integration of global supply chains and the role that it would have with peace. And the interesting thing about this is that that came out of a policy choice. And now what we're seeing more and more is that innovation, it's a policy space. And it's an important policy space that connects us with different uh, geostrategic areas of the planet, including uh, including the, the, the Asia-Pacific area. So um, we talked a lot about right now innovation and technology, but policy is innovation and can be innovation too. So is, this, is, this in, is, is it important, for example, for a program like Hacking4 uh, to, to emphasize that not everything can be, as, as, as Jim often likes to say, uh, solved with putting some code on a Raspberry Pi. And sometimes <laughs> the best kind of innovation is one that comes from the policy space. And we need more creation uh, also also in that, in that area, in that sphere. Yeah, I think we do definitely need more creation in that area, or creativeness in that area. You know, one thing you mentioned, um, I think, related to the Asia-Pacific, you know, I think there's tremendous opportunity to work with with partners there. Uh, India being one of them. Absolutely. Um, with with the you know the the talent that they have, um, you know they also you know some of the well, I think India may be one of them, particularly with the talent that they have. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of opportunity to to work with them. There's other countries in Southeast Asia 
um, you know, even in, in Europe and Latin America too, uh, and, and Africa uh, as well, that, you know, we really should be looking um, beyond our borders and, and finding ways to, to work with some of these other countries on these, on these issues. Um, you know, I think policy helps propel um, the, you know, the direction uh, which is necessary and you need to have consistent policies too. So, you know, um, we, we, you know, as a democratic society, we, we have four years of a presidency and then an election. Um, you know, it, it would, it would be great if we though, as, as a nation can agree that these are, you know, really important issues for all of us and that there would be some policy consistency, um, so that we can take advantage of, you know, funding policies, um, direction, um, you know, just a common understanding to, to together work and, and solve these, these problems. No, I, I love, I love hearing that. And I think it's one of the things that, you know, having worked with the government for a long time or government adjacent is that there needs to be a set of rules that everybody agrees on or something that's important to everybody, regardless of what seat of the aisle, what side of the aisle you sit on. And I, I completely agree with that perspective is that, it's some of these things that should be easy for us to agree on, unfortunately, don't always go that way. So I think this is going to be a fundamental area to your to your point, Kim, that we have to get this right to facilitate all the other things we want to do and say, like, yeah, this is we've agreed on this. We're going to we're going to put that on the shelf. and We're going to move away from it because it's that's what needs to happen. So do you do you have hope right now, given the, the federal climate, that that's something that we can see down the road um, that they're going to be able to kind of come up and say, like, yeah, these are these are the set of rules that we can be happy with, at least for the time being? You know, interesting. I think that there's a lot of bipartisan and even nonpartisan consensus on China policy. And a lot of that stemming, I think, from China's policies in general. Sure. So what's coming out of the Xi Jinping, you know, leadership there. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's not a difficult task, I think, for Democrats, Republicans, independents, whichever, you know, political affiliation that you have, understand that, um, you know, we as a nation don't want to become China. And um, we also see what China uh, under, you know, Xi Jinping is, is doing and what he wants to achieve. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a common understanding um, of, of, you know, what we, what we need to do um, in that space. I, I think it's where the the differences is probably how much to turn up the heat and mm. how far to go and how much do you dial up um, in these areas. Uh, for me, I think that uh, you know we don't have time. I think that we uh, the the importance is now, uh, and we need to do as much as we can now to ensure that. Um, our future is steady and um, the next generation um, can take the cusp and, and um, still stay in the lead. So, you know, I think that um, really we, we need to do all that we can and um, take this moment and, um, you know, um, move quickly on our policies and, and the policy agreements. Thank you. So, yeah. Kim, thank you. Thank you so much. I think that the most important uh, element that I retain for myself is that we, I think we're finally reaching a consensus that expresses that uh, uh, innovation theory and innovation management is uh, uh, national security, but you go beyond that, right? And what you're saying here is that it's also geostrategic, right? That there is a component of 
of uh, effective, uh, well-executed policies that bring an element of geo geostrategic balance of of, of power uh, that uh, we should be considering. And when you're optimizing to improve the supply chain management software uh, to bring better fueling, make whatever that you might think it's not, it's not, uh, uh, well, you're actually building something which bigger, which is a, a, a geostrategic global architecture that defends the values that you describe, like democracy, the rule of law, and, and, and the kind of freedom that, that we'd like to say are part of the structures that we put together here. So thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And uh, what we always do is good hacking for uh, practitioners here is say, is there anything that we didn't ask or that we that you'd like to bring up, Kim, or um, what's would be the closing thoughts that you'd have based on kind of the conversation or where you see things going and and what you hope to see happen, perhaps? I think we hit on a lot of topics. So so thank you very much for the opportunity to be here, um, to be speaking on these issues. Thank you, too, for all the work that you're doing for Common Mission Project. Um, this is a tremendously important issue area. I'm glad that um, it's having an impact both nationally and globally. Uh, I think it should. I think we, there's so much more that we need to be doing. Um, and I'm really, uh, really excited and pleased to be part of this mission. So thank you. Oh, the pleasure is all ours, Kim. Thank you again. Uh, so anybody who's listening to this, I think Kim brought up a couple of really interesting points here. Your problem sponsor that are in these all of these spaces that we're in, we would love to hear from you. So make sure you get in contact. Our contact information is in the description of the episode. Uh, some more information about Kim and, and the, the amazing work that she's doing. You'll find some information uh, on her, some links there from our, our website. But uh, Kim, thank you so much for joining us and your willingness to share the expertise. Thank you for being on the board. It's people like you that keep this organization uh, directionally fit. And it's not lost on either myself or Rodrigo, the, the tremendous value that you add to the organization. So thank you sincerely. Thank you both. It's good to be here. Thank you. Rodrigo, always thank a you, pleasure. Jim. Thank you. Thank you, Kim. Bye-bye. Thank you again to the Common Mission Project for their support of this podcast. The Common Mission Project has demonstrated that students can tackle some of the toughest government problems and in doing so, create vibrant, diverse ecosystems for government, academia, and industry build partnerships around problems, prototypes, and solutions to urgent challenges facing our nation. To find out more about the Common Mission Project, please visit commonmission.us, which is linked in the description of this episode, as well as finding out options on how you can get more involved with our wonderful nonprofit organizations, including opportunities to donate. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you on the next one.